Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March the 30th, 2022, and the headlines remain dominated by the Russians um, and their behavior in Ukraine. We're trying to figure out what they're up to. New York Times headlines from a few minutes ago talks about mixed messages on talks from Russia as it keeps up the attack. A lot of it depends on our interpretation of Vladimir Putin. We've done a number of shows about that. One op-ed in the Times today from a Russia observer, seasoned Russian observer, suggests that Vladimir Putin might have lost interest in the present, whatever that means. Maybe he's more interested in the past or the future. I don't know what that says about his leadership skills. But Brett Stevens, the fairly conservative New York Times columnist who's been on the show, asks, I think, a really important question. What if Putin didn't miscalculate? What if he actually knows exactly what he's doing? In other words, uh, whether perhaps Putin is a more effective leader than some people, at least, who have been on the show recently suggest. Certainly, Joe Biden's leadership skills aren't at their highest point. Um, The polls suggest that his approval rating has fallen to the lowest levels of his presidency. I don't know whether that always reflects his leadership skills, but it's certainly connected. A lot of that, of course, had to do with um, Biden's verbal gaffe about getting rid of Putin. Meanwhile, uh, the winner on the leadership stakes seems to be... uh, The Ukrainian Prime Minister Zelensky, uh, the Pew report suggests that he has the highest approval of all international leaders. Uh, uh, He's beating Macron, uh, Schultz, Biden, Xi and Putin. So he's clearly doing something right, Zelensky, as a leader. And our leadership authorities like Adam Grant suggests that he is indeed providing leadership lessons. Three words that I found is that Zelensky is unfiltered, unadorned, and unafraid. So this is going to be a show about leadership. And who better to talk about leadership than my guest today, Barbara Kellerman. Um, She is one of not just America, but I think the world's leading authorities uh, on leadership. She's very much involved with the Harvard Kennedy School Institute of Politics, and has written many books about leaders, leaders who lust, professionalizing leadership, hard times, leadership in America, the inevitable, the end of leadership, leadership, essential selections on power, authority, and influence, bad leadership, and of course, women and leadership. And I'm thrilled that Barbara is joining us from Westport, Connecticut. Barbara, welcome. Do you agree with people like Adam Grant that Zelensky is coming out of this whole crisis as the most effective leader and that both Putin and, and, and uh, Putin and Biden are, are examples of bad leaders in this crisis? Uh, hi there, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Uh, so let's stop for a moment at the word bad 
Uh, it depends on how we're defining the word. You know, when I wrote Bad Leadership uh, some number of years ago, and by the way, what I call the leadership industry tends to be uninterested in bad leadership because it's so fixated on developing good leaders, but I'm as interested in bad leadership as in good leadership. But I've learned that I need to define it, uh, or at least clarify it against two separate axes. One is ethical and unethical. In other words, you can be a bad leader in that you're unethical, but you can be a good leader in that you're uh, effective. So it is possible, and to take the most glaring example perhaps that history has to offer, between 1933 and 1939, Hitler was a very bad leader in that he was extremely unethical, but he was a very good leader in that he was extremely effective. After 1939, it, it becomes an open question and much more of a subject for discussion. But uh, it all depends on how we define bad. And about Zelensky, I'll just quickly answer. Uh, this is really a question of man, and I use man here advisedly. Uh, man meets moment. In other words, immediately before the Russian invasion, his poll numbers in Ukraine were in the 20s. He was thought rather ineffectual as far as COVID goes, as far as corruption goes. He was not thought of particularly highly, and people kept saying, oh, no wonder, because we've, after all, elected a comic actor as president. So when I see say man met moment, every now and then in human history, it happens that there is a crisis of some kind, and then whoever at that moment is in time is in a position of power, authority, and influence, and by the way, I distinguish among the three, uh, if they respond to the crisis in a way that seems to meet the needs of his or sometimes her followers, then, then it is a question of, or it is a, an example of man meets moment. But let's not glorify him too much because he, his extreme success has been dependent on what Putin did. What about his uh, dress, Barbara? A lot of people have been inspired or outraged by how casual he appears in front of uh, the world's media. When he spoke to Congress, for example, he was dressed in a T-shirt like a, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. Is this the future of political leadership or is it just, as you suggested, uh, a consequence of very unusual times? Well, it actually, uh, Andrew, slight friendly amendment. It was a very particular kind of T-shirt, and he wasn't in the T-shirt all the time. It was essentially an army khaki T-shirt. Uh, look, um, I never talk about leadership anymore, and I haven't for some years, without talking about what I call the leadership system. That has three parts. One is the leader. Two are the followers, and we might talk a little bit more about them later. We and will three... certainly talk about your theories of followership, but let's focus on leadership for the moment. Yeah, well, I want to just mention context. So uh, Zelensky is perfectly attired for the wartime context in which he is uh, showing himself to the world. Would he be equally appropriate if he were in some Manhattan boardroom? Absolutely not, and dressed like that. So people go, oh my God, this is the attire of the future. They are totally leaving out that third component of the leadership system. Context, how you dress depends on where you are and what is the occasion. And the same applies to him. We've had a number of business experts on the show. Keith Ferrazzi was on last week uh, talking about what 
politicians can learn from corporate CEOs. He has a new book out, Competing in the New World of Work. Um, do you think that politicians, whether it's leaders of Ukraine or America or Russia or Germany or France, do they have something to learn from our corporate CEOs these days, uh, Barbara, or, or is it the other way around? Or are they both as incompetent as each other when it comes to leadership? <laughs> Look, obviously, there are some brilliantly successful uh, corporate leaders, and very occasionally, there's some brilliantly successful political leaders. You know, political leaders are so much more in the public eye that for followers who these days are restive and quick to jump on anyone who does anything even slightly wrong, they're much easier, political leaders, much easier targets. Uh, by comparison, private sector leaders are relatively anonymous. Of course, there are some very famous ones, but most of us don't know the names of them. I would say that corporate leaders, it, it, obviously, and I'm sure you've talked about this on the show, their response, and I'm, I'm now talking about um, American and European mostly, uh, their response to the crisis in Ukraine has been rather singular, not in keeping with their previous past patterns. It's not clear how long it's going to last, but they've decided it was probably good business as well as the right thing to do to be on the side of the angels. And that is, I guess, the last I saw, well over 400 companies had to some either totally or to a degree uh, withdrawn their business from Russia. Uh, so there's a way of talking about corporate leaders, uh, pro uh, public sector leaders, non-for-profit leaders, military leaders, in ways that transcend all leaders at all times. And there are also ways of talking about them that are, as I said earlier, very context specific. Barbara, can you have your cake and eat it as a leader? In other words, can you be on the side of angels and benefit? Certainly a lot of our guests believe that. Uh, another of your colleagues, Stephen M. R. Covey, has been on the show talking about how Vladimir Putin could improve his quality of trust. He has a new book out, Trust and Inspire, How Truly Great Leaders Unleash Greatness in Others. This is, touches on your notion, I think, of followership, although we'll come to that after the break. Uh, Cam, and, and, and you suggested when you talked about Hitler that you can be a good leader and unethical at the same time. So let me reverse that question. Can you be a good leader and simultaneously ethical? Do those go together? As so many business writers seem to be suggesting from Stephen M. R. Covey to Keith Ferrazzi to uh, Susan McKenty Brady was on the show, many of your colleagues. Well, I'm not sure they would think of me as one of their colleagues, Andrew. Um, well, maybe one, one of their of, critics then. Don't be well, shy. You don't of, seem very shy. So tell me the truth, what you really well, think. Well, one of the books that you held up was a book uh, that came out uh, in 2018, a few years ago, and it's called Professionalizing Leadership. And in that book, although I did And that's that, by you, of course, uh, Professionalizing Leadership. We have it on the screen now, yeah. Yes, Right. In that book, um, I really take aim at what I call the leadership industry. It has become, as I know you know, leadership that is, a very big business. A lot of people who call themselves leadership experts, some for good and valid reason, others not so much, um, have made a lot of money 
uh, saying they know all about leadership. And that's what I meant earlier, Andrew, when I said uh, this business, the leadership ind industry by and large focuses on the good side. Uh, the book you just held up is another how-to book of which there are countless books. I don't mean my own. I mean the one you held, held up by one of my colleagues. Oh, uh, the, the, you mean the, uh, wait. Yes, exactly. Trust and Inspire and, and the earlier one you held up. Those are all books about how to be a good leader, how to be a great leader, how to be wonderful, how to this. And the leadership industry, that's the main product that it sells. I am not like that. I am much more jaundiced in my view. I tell my students, as I tell any audience, including yours, uh, if you want to know how to be a good leader, then you need to turn to someone else. If you want to learn all about leadership, the good side, the bad side, the complicated side, which I then believe would actually make you a better leader, because I'm a big believer that if you understand the richness of something intellectually, you will actually be better at practicing it. But that's not, uh, you know, most of my colleagues offer tips and that's not what I do. I try to unpackage a subject that has been of endless interest to me. It's all about power and all about how we get other people to do what we want them to do or not. Uh, it's been of uh, endless interest to me for many years. But I look at it, uh, and the reason I call that, uh, the book that I just referred to, Professionalizing Leadership, I wish we would teach leadership the way a medical school teaches students how to be a physician and a law school teaches students how to be lawyers. And by the way, a, a truck driving school teaches people how to drive a truck and a hairdressing school teaches men and women how to be good barbers or hair cutters. There are ways of professionalizing what we do, but for some reason, for all our instruction on leadership, we have not professionalized the pedagogy. Well, let me ask you a subtle question then, Barbara. Are you suggesting that the leadership business, as you describe it, is a bit of a scam? Uh, don't put words into my mouth. Well, Andrew. I wasn't. I, I, I'm was, always in enough trouble as it is. Well, it's I'm good. So you, start, you seem to be the kind of person who enjoys being in trouble. So I don't think you're shy of trouble. Uh, no, you don't strike me as shy either, Andrew. Um, I don't think I would use that word. Uh, but what word is, would you use then? It is absolutely true that it, 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 the industry sends a message, read my book, take my course, come to my workshop, and you too can be a wonderful, inspirational, trustworthy, fabulous leader. I don't think that's how it works. I think it's much harder, much more complicated. By the way, there is one, and I'll speak about the United States, there's one American institution <laughs> that I think teaches leadership relatively very well. I am not saying perfectly, but relatively very well. And that is the American military, uh, by no means limited to officers, but they are the most extreme example. They get them when they're young, so they educate them, they train them, and they then develop them through continuing education lifelong. It's the opposite of sending a message that I just said, take my course, read my book, and you too will be a great leader. We are talking with Barbara Kellerman, the author of The Enablers and many other books about both successful leadership, bad leadership, and how to screw up leadership, which is what The Enablers is about. We're going to take a short break, Barbara, now. Then I want to talk about The Enablers and your model of 
Trump as a bad or ineffective, rather pathetic leader. And then I want to I want to investigate your theory of followership, followership, and why, in some ways, it's more important than leadership. So we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back with Barbara Kellerman, one of America's leading authorities on both leadership and followership. Stay with us, everybody. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with Barbara Kellerman, the author of The Enablers, um, How Team Trump flunked the pandemic and failed America. It's her latest book. She's written many books on followers and leadership. Uh, we did a, a show uh, last week talking about Donald Trump more as a symptom than a cause of today's crisis of American democracy. And I wonder, Barbara, if we can extend that, whether Team Trump's failure on the COVID front and many other fronts reflect a crisis of leadership in America. Is that one way of thinking about the debacle of the Trump years in America? Yes and no. <laughs> so we can get specific about the Trump uh, administration, but I want to put the uh, Trump and his administration uh, in an historical perspective. In the book that I wrote, it came out in 2012 called The End of Leadership, I talked about how in liberal democracies in particular, and this pertains to the corporate sector as well as to the public sector. In liberal democracies in particular, the balance of power between leaders and followers was shifting. So that leaders over time, and I think between 2012 and 2022, meaning the last 10 years would seem to confirm this. Leaders over time, and by the way, we could go back hundreds of years, certainly to the enlightenment, Leaders over time have lost some of, uh, again, I'm speaking in liberal democracies, although Andrew, 
I hasten to add that what's happened in autocracies in the last decade, Russia, China, Turkey, Egypt, is a mirror image of what I'm describing in liberal democracies. The reasons or reason autocracies have become more rigid in the last decade, every one of them, certainly the four that I just mentioned, is precisely because of what I'm describing, which is these leaders understand that unless they are more oppressive and repressive than they were in the past, their followers, ordinary people, are going to give them a whole lot of trouble. So that's why it's two sides of the same coin. To return to liberal democracies in general, followers, whether again, corporate sector, public sector, followers have become more powerful and more influential while leaders have lost respect, they have lost authority, they have lost power. And this is, again, CEOs, presidents, prime ministers, you name it. It's funny and Trump, by the way, just, yeah, just it, one it, more, sorry, sorry, Andrew, one more sentence. Trump, his, uh, his election and the rabidness of his base, they were a reflection of the syndrome that I'm just describing. Right, a syndrome of the crisis of leadership. It's funny, and power. It's funny that you came out with a book in 2012 called The End of Leadership. I think it was in 2014. I don't want to refer to him as a, as your colleague, but another very distinguished writer, Moises Naim, came out with a book called The End of Power. Correct. Which I think in some ways was arguing similar things to your arguing in The End of Leadership. But ironically, and Moises was on the show earlier this year, he has a new book out in 2022 called The Revenge of Power. Might um, Barbara Kellerman be coming out with a book called The Revenge of Leadership in 2023 or 2024? <laughs> well, you're absolutely right. Uh, you're right on two counts, Andrew. First of all, my book came out about a year before his did. Uh, and you are also right in saying that the end of leadership and the end of power made some fundamentally similar arguments. And I think he was right. And I think I was right. And I think where we are now, as I said earlier, both in, you know, how many times in the last five years have we heard the phrase crisis of liberal democracy? The crisis of liberal democracy and arguably of autocracy is a reflection of the syndrome uh, to which I pointed. And you're right about Naeem having essentially the same argument. And what about this idea of the revenge of power? He He's a very, I really like Moises, actually, because he acknowledges, unlike a lot of authors, that he may have been a little incorrect in the past, or certainly over-optimistic about the end of power. Do you think you were a bit over-optimistic about the end of leadership in 2012? I think that where I was, I, I think I was not. Uh, by the way, I wouldn't call it optimism or pessimism. I would call it realism. What I'm describing and what he described earlier that came to pass. Now, the results, and this, I get, I get this question, Andrew, more than any other, which is if this, let's just talk about liberal democracies for a moment. If the trend continues, which is that, and you mentioned Biden earlier, these crazy low poll ratings. I'm not saying he's God's gift to leaders, but it's crazy that people say, you know, he's generally really doing a good job and his poll numbers are really bad. So when you lead or try to lead, and by the way, again, this applies to the corporate sector too, in a climate in which everybody hates you, nobody trusts you, our trust in leaders, our trust in institutions 
it's plummeted in the in recent decades and all that has consequences for the inability to lead easily in a liberal democracy hence the phrase that as i said earlier we have heard countless times in the last five six seven years that is the phrase crisis of liberal democracy because people wonder whether it's you know boris johnson or joe biden or you mentioned earlier macron schultz is brand new in the job merkel was ex an exception to the general rule although looking back at her now even in recent months i'm going you know was this Nord Stream thing such a great idea she seemed to err badly on that one so leaders in liberal democracies are really vulnerable which is as i argued in the end of leadership because of changes in the culture and changes in technology and those two changes, changes in the culture, changes, changes in technology, have twinned to make leading in a liberal democracy very hard. Ask any CEO, ask any college president, ask any president more generally or prime minister more generally. It's tough out there getting anything done. And hence the, the phrase that, as I said before, we heard so often, the crisis of liberal democracy. You're also the author, as I said earlier, uh, Women and Leadership, the State of Play and Strategies for Change. You mentioned uh, Angela Merkel. As I said earlier, we had Susan McKenzie Brady on the show talking about how leadership values like empathy might make the world a better place. She has a new book out, Arrive and Thrive, Seven Impactful Practices for Women Navigating Leadership. Should there and I'm using these phrases carefully. Are there such female leadership qualities, Barbara, as empathy and thriving? Or is that another scam on the leadership industry business? Oh, my God. Do not associate me with the word scam. I'm never going to. I, as I said, I have enough trouble without you, Andrew, <laughs> signing that label to me. Uh, so I'm, I happen to be a little allergic to numbers. So when seven, somebody says the three easy ways to be a good leader or the nine easy ways, you know, I'm a little allergic. Again, as I said earlier, it always makes it seem it's so easy. If you just do these three things or these seven things or these 10 things, you too can be a great leader. Look, there's ample research to suggest that women are probably more empathetic and collaborative and cooperative, all that kind of stuff. But as with almost everything else in the leadership field, I have a different angle on women in leadership, which we probably won't go into today. Well, we but... need to. We need to, Barbara. Give me a give me the give me a, a summary. Is 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 it exaggerated? I, I wrote a piece um, uh, last week about what I called neoliberal pieties and how uh, business school empathy, quote unquote, aren't getting us out of this mess. Are you in that school suggesting that all this is ultimately a little bit ideological? Well, I don't know if the words empathy and Putin can be used in the same, I was going to say same sentence, try same paragraph, try same book. Uh, I don't know. So yes, I agree with you what you just said, Andrew. It's not uh, the angle that I have brought to the subject of women leadership, by the way, not in the book you held up. This is much more recent. Uh, but it has to do with a what I call the sociobiological perspective and uh, again, it's probably off topic. Do you want me to say another sentence or two? Of course I do, Barbara. Okay, well, here you go. I'm not sure you bargained for this one, Andrew. But in this case, I am referring to the impact of pregnancy and 
as I say, leadership and lactation, that is pregnancy and breastfeeding on women and leadership. Those two subjects, having a miscarriage, menstruating, uh, breastfeeding, pregnancy, those are subjects, I dare you to find them in the leadership literature, the literature on women and leadership. And I happen to think they are extremely important in ways that maybe someday we can have another conversation about. And is that part of your thesis on leaders who lust, money, power, sex, success, legitimacy, legacy? Can women lust as aggressively as men? Well, uh, uh, no. First of all, there aren't that many women leaders. Second of all, if a woman is seen too much to lust, and by the way, the main, uh, the main female character in that book, and I'll use the word lust in a minute, is Hillary Clinton. So the subtitle of that book is what's all important. It is not simply about lust as we often think of it, which is lust for sex. So the subtitle is power, money, sex, success, legitimacy, and legacy. In other words, me and my co-author, uh, Todd Patinsky, came up with six different lusts. And these, this lust is simply an appetite a leader driven by an appetite, by a hunger that will never be still, that no matter, it's, I don't know if you remember the great Churchill line about Hitler, I think it was 30, 38. Uh, he said about Hitler, his appetite may grow with eating. It's a brilliant, it's one of my favorite leadership lines ever. And it implies that if you give one of these people who are craving money or craving power or craving sex or success, if you give them what they want, they simply want more. And that's why leaders who lust make history. As I said earlier, you're also one of the pioneers of theories on followership. Uh, you, uh, your book, uh, Followership, How Followers Are Creating Change and Changing Leaders is, and I use this word carefully, quite innovative. Why should we be in some ways, Barbara, more interested in the idea of followership than leadership. And, and, and what do you mean by followership? Okay, so Andrew, this is again, you know, an incredibly long conversation. I'm going to make it very fast. Because words like leader and follower have lots of different definitions, I, I define follower as somebody in a subordinate position. I do not define it by behavior. Therefore, you can have a follower who refuses to follow, that does happen. Let me simply say there are 1 billion books, articles, courses, you name it, on leadership. There are less than a handful, and I'm not being hyperbolic here, on followership. Why do I think it's important? Let me count the ways. If I may take two more minutes. One, the great literature on followership is from the 60s, in consequence on the heels of World War II, where a few very prominent social scientists started to ask themselves, surely World War II cannot only have been about Hitler, what else was going on here? And that's when you had the famous, 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 most, social, uh, uh, most prominent social science experiment of all time, Stanley Milgram's obedience to authority. Why do we obey authority? Now to come to the present, I will simply say, and this is in keeping with what I earlier said, Andrew, that in this day and age, followers, whether it's, it, it's so obvious, whether it's the 
Me Too movement or whether it's Black Lives Matter movement. You know, you can go back to the rights revolutions. You see it playing out right now at Disney where the new, still relatively new CEO, Bob Chappick said he could thought to himself, oh, I don't have to pay attention to this don't say gay bill in the state of Florida and found he's had protesters all over the place. In other words, CEOs, presidents, prime ministers, college presidents, they don't pay attention to their stakeholders, followers, constituents, call them what you will, and they will run into trouble so fast they won't know what hit them. Followers are not obedient the way they used to be. They never were that obedient, but they're less obedient now. They're less respectful of authority. And any leader who does not pay attention to his or her various followers, again, stakeholders, constituents, I don't care what you call them, is going to find him or herself in trouble right fast because that's the way liberal democracies now work. Is there a model for a leader, political, corporate or otherwise, who have managed or manipulated or massaged their followers effectively that other leaders can follow? You know, there are always some uh, good CEOs, good presidents and prime ministers that one can look to. I always prefer not to give examples because of what I said earlier, Andrew. What makes a good leader in one context is simply not applicable necessarily to another context. So I used to say to audiences, who do you think is the greatest living leader? And I said, you have to, it has to be somebody who's alive. And they would say, they would think for a while, and then the audience or the group would reach consensus, Nelson Mandela. And the group was very, for a long time, many years, everybody was very happy. He seemed to be the model of a good leader. We don't have to go into some of the problems with South Africa. Suffice it to say it was somebody they could agree on. Now, when I ask that question, okay, let, who's your example of the greatest living leader? Because I insist that they give me somebody who's alive. Uh, the answer, you know, they cannot generally agree. I will, get, I will name somebody who I think is an incredibly effective leader still now. And this guy, and you're going to guess in a minute, Andrew, who I'm talking about, this guy ran into what I call idiot trouble a year or so ago, maybe 18 months ago. And since then, he's hardly shown his face. Uh, the person I'm talking about, can you guess, Andrew? I can't, actually. I, uh, Steve Jobs is dead. I, I don't know. Well, you're, you're close. You're close. Mark I'm thinking, I'm thinking of Bill Gates, who in two entirely separate spheres, one obviously the sphere of Microsoft technology, then he gives that up and he enters the field of philanthropy with his wife. They have done absolutely stunning things and they have been innovative and played leadership roles that, you know, by every definition qualifies as a singular success. Now, you know what happened to him. Some people, you know, he, he, he got a divorce. He and Melinda got a divorce and it came out that he flirted with somebody. I'm not even sure it was an affair. And suddenly, you know, he's embarrassed and not literally banished, but he, you know, we used to see even during the first year, year and a half of the pandemic, we would see this guy all the time, incredibly interesting, knowledgeable, effective as a communicator about COVID. And then he vanished. He vanished because of this. And people, this is the age we live in. You know, it's one of the problems of being a leader now, or, you know, slight escapades or not. 
in in the past. Uh, you know this this um, the uh, the embarrassment and humiliations that leaders can suffer now. This is un. You know, my favorite example is in the White House is the comparison between John Kennedy, who we now know was an incredible bounder. In fact, he's in that same book because he lusted for sex in a way that is, you know, sort of off the, off the charts. Uh, and we had no idea. Americans had no clue while it was going on. And then, of course, years later, Bill Clinton's in the White House and we found out every last little unpleasant or not so unpleasant detail about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. Times change, context changes, and that's why leadership is so much harder now than it was when John Kennedy was alive. And I think it's it's harder also to be a celebrity these days. We did a show yesterday with an author written a very interesting book on um, Leonard Cohen, yeah. who idealizes the older Cohen because he got beyond his addiction to sex and women. Um, so it's not just in political terms, it's in cultural terms too. You mentioned Bill Gates, of course, which brings up tech and Silicon Valley. Barbara, we did a show with the Wall Street Journal writer, Catherine Sayer, on Tony Shea, uh, the CEO, yeah. founder, well, I don't think he was the founder, CEO of Zappos, sold his company to uh, Amazon a few years ago, made a lot of money and was a pioneer of centerless companies, companies without essentially leaderships in his vision. He was a miserable guy. He died miserably. He didn't seem to be successful. Do you think these ideas, which out here in Silicon Valley are now being called Web 3.0, where we can get beyond the architecture of leadership, is that more nonsense from Silicon Valley, more uh, more pipe dreams, more things they're selling us as they get richer and richer? If I say yes, Andrew, will you again accuse me of calling all this a scam? Um, I'm, I, I, you know, you raised the question of skepticism. Uh, we have heard about, uh, you know, leaderless organizations, uh, you know, flatter hierarchies, empowerment, yada, yada, team and teaming. I'm not saying it is irrelevant or unimportant. I do not wish to be put in that corner. Do I think that the ancient verities, the Shakespearean Machiavellian verities of some people having more power than others, if only by the force of their personality, if not even by title, if those ancient verities, you know, we're talking about the human condition here. It's not going to vanish. The ancient, you know, the whether it's Aristotle or Plato, whether it's Confucius or Lao Tzu, whether we're talking Machiavelli, you, you name it. Uh, you wanna know about leadership? Go to see Julius Caesar. You want to know, by the way, about followership, go to see Julius Caesar. These human dynamics do not change. They will not change, although I do not wish to be seen as dismissing the sort of more modern, flatter hierarchy lingo to which you just alluded. Well, if you really want to learn about leadership and followership in particular, and don't just read Plato and Machiavelli, read Barbara Kellerman, uh, the author of Fellowship and many other important books. Uh, I love your um, uh, iconoclastic style, Barbara. It's wonderful to have someone who tells the truth on this show. Most people don't. Um, what else should people be reading as we get to April 1st, all Fool's Day in uh, 2022? Any other well, suggestions? Well, I'm a big, uh, we actually, yeah, we actually still play April Fool's jokes in our family, which may say much more about our family than about April Fool's Day. But I love, I love being funny. I love laughter. I, you know, in this world, 
impossible not to laugh, otherwise you drown. Uh, so I'm gonna name two books. You, you told me this question was coming. I love the question. And I'm gonna name two books, one utterly contemporaneous and one a little less contemporaneous. The contemporaneous one that I very recently read, I think it came out a few months ago or maybe a year or so ago in 2021. It's by Sherry Turkle. Uh, it's called The Empathy Diaries. It's a memoir and she is fabulous at interlacing, if you will, the psychoanalytic perspective with the machine as in technology, as in computers. And I love that blending of the liberal arts tradition with modern technology. It's so funny, Barbara, you're the third person this week to talk about Turkle. She's been on the show several times. She's an old friend of mine. I assume you know her, a remarkable woman. And The Empathy Diaries is indeed uh, a, a very important book. I couldn't agree with you more. And it's, Oh, um, my goodness. I, I love someone that, needs, You know what? Someone needs to write a book about the impact that Sherry Turkle is having on other, uh, particularly, I think, female writers, thinkers, academics. She's clearly an enormously influential figure. Yes, and she's just, she's a wonderful, she's deviant in the best possible way because yes. she's a humanist and she gets the technology. And that is such- I agree. And that deviancy and humanism in her book, I think, um, on empathy is reflected in her confession of loving clothes and appearance, which exactly. most women don't like. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right, Andrew. And I love the coincidence. I, I had no idea, to be honest, that she'd been mentioned previously. So I'm going to bet you the second person that I would. And she's author. just up the road at MIT, isn't she? You can walk over and have a cup of tea together. Yeah. From, uh, <laughs> just up Math Lab. Yeah, yeah. No, she's 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 wonderful. Uh, but the second person, uh, I'll I'll bet you ten bucks right now, or ten pounds. Uh, that the second person has not been named, the second author has not been named. This goes back to a book that came out in 1966. It is by a man who for a long time was, he's now passed, uh, for a long time was the Librarian of Congress, but really to some of us is best known as a quintessential scholar of Russia. The book is called The Icon and the Axe, it is, as I said, came out in the 60s. It is a cultural history of Russia. Since we are all trying to psychoanalyze Putin and analyze Russia and figure out what the hell is going on here, the cultural history, the art, the, the, the pre-Romanov, pre-Czars, the era of the Czarists, right up to Joseph Stalin, uh, the art, the music, uh, the religion, all of that, it's a wonderful kind of basic book on Russia, which I think has a huge amount to say about where we are in Is it by uh, Billy, uh, Billing, what's J his name? James Billington. Yeah, Billington. I James Billington, The Icon and the X. And it's- And I know, Barbara, you did your master's degree um, about uh, at Yale on uh, Russian history. So this is something that you've yeah, done a correct. lot of writing, thinking and yeah, reading on. So. Yeah, Good. absolutely correct, right. Yeah. Good, good suggestions, Barbara, Turkle and Billingham. And finally, and I don't think anyone's in a better position to, to answer this one, uh, Barbara Kellerman, the author of many books on leadership and followership, and uh, as well as her latest book, The Enablers, on Trump's mismanagement of COVID. Uh, Barbara Kellerman, who's in charge in uh, late March 2022? Who runs the world? 
So I'm going to give you an answer that's more than one name. The, the, the single person is in charge is a man by the name of Vladimir Putin, but I need to explain myself. Typically, he is referred to as a leader. Joe Biden's referred to as a leader. Olaf Scholz is referred to as a leader. Zelensky is referred to as a leader. Every now and then, when we use the leader-follower language, we find it falls short. In this case, think of it as a play, a drama. In this drama, there is a single protagonist, and that's Putin. The others are reacting to the protagonist. So I prefer the language in this case, and probably in many others, even though it's not the language we normally or even I normally use, Putin is the actor and everybody else, the Zelensky's, the Biden's, the Schultz's, the Johnson's, you name them, these legions of people across the planet that have somehow gotten involved, most of them in helping Ukrainians, all of them are the reactors. In other words, Putin is the protagonist, everybody else is reacting. Putin is the lead actor, everybody else is a reactor.